From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They are young parents, and they're both getting chemo for colon cancer on separate schedules. So basically, he's either sick for the week or I'm sick for the week. And so, Did you plan it that way? No, but it's almost better than both of us being sick at once. I can imagine. Having two parents sick and having a six-year-old trying to run around is really hard. Casey Peters and Eric Stanley of Denver share their story today. We'll also talk to her oncologist about the growth worldwide in early-onset colorectal cancer. One of the biggest things that we can do now is just make people aware that they should never hear the words you're too young to develop colorectal cancer. And yet Casey and Eric are both under the screening age of 45. So what are we supposed to do? As a member, you play a powerful role. That's because the stories, voices, and music you hear on CPR all begin with your support. Make a difference for your neighbors and fellow Coloradans with your gift now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. She was diagnosed with colon cancer. Then, a year and a half later, her husband was. Now, Casey Peters and Eric Stanley, both under the screening age of 45, are fighting the disease together and raising a child. In a few minutes, Casey's oncologist, Dr. Christopher Liu, will join us to answer questions about early-onset colorectal cancer, which doctors are seeing more of. First, Eric, Casey, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Casey, you've tried calculating the odds that spouses would both get colon cancer so close together and so young. What did you come up with? About one in a hundred million. One in a hundred million. Yeah. Is that like getting struck by lightning or... I think to me, the weird thing is there's 300 million people in the United States. So it's actually not as rare as I expected when Mm. we both got diagnosed. When you think of it over a population, I guess. Yeah, but you just don't think it's going to happen to you. You'd much rather win the Powerball, and that's about the same odds, than you would two people getting colon cancer in the same household. So do those odds ever make you think, why me? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, at first... It was what is in our environment, and immediately we changed to bottled water in the house as if that was going to fix anything and wanted to get our water tested. Because you thought if we both have it, it's something we're both maybe exposed to. And I'll say a lot of doctors we talked to, general practitioners, wondered that too. We live in Central Park. uh, It's a neighborhood in Denver. neighborhood Mm -hmm. in Denver that is an old airport. And so immediately my mom was calling us from New Jersey saying, You have to move now. Um, It's clear that the ground that you're on is contaminated and you've been living there for six years. You're getting sick because it was chemicals in the ground. Um, And that really was pretty terrifying to think. Um, It was only after talking to a lot of medical professionals, not just our own oncologists, but friends that are also colorectal surgeons, Mm -hmm. did we give up on it's something that was the immediate background of, mm. of what we're living in, because we don't want it to you know, impact our six-year-old son. We want to make sure that we're living in an environment that's healthy for him so that he doesn't have to suffer from this. And we will bring in a medical expert, uh, because I think the question of, of why you and why anyone is an important one. Is it genetics? Is it environmental? But the notion of moving 
is something you debunked, I guess. Yeah, you know, we got our water tested. And another thing, you know, my doctor, uh, she, I think, moved from the East Coast. She might have been from around the Washington, D.C. area. And immediately she said, I'm seeing the same rise around there. It wasn't something that was all that localized, which I got to say, it was like a wave of new information coming into me last February. But um, you quickly realize that this is really, really widespread. And a lot of people don't know that. Mm. Um, I mean, Casey, you were talking about when you go to a hairdresser. Yeah, the hairdresser that I go to in my neighborhood has four women under the age of 45 with advanced stage colon cancer. I can say that I have a young friend, uh, certainly under 45, again, the recommended screening age, who has rectal cancer. Mm -hmm. And his prognosis is promising, but it's been, boy, a tough road to hoe. Okay, I want to ask about this idea that husband and wife both get a colon cancer diagnosis in less than two years, uh, even as they're trying to raise a child with it. Like, that's not difficult enough. how you doing? First, <laughs> can I just say how you doing? Uh, do you remember the first week of COVID where everything was just a mess and everyone was trying to homeschool their kids with like whatever they had around the house and trying to keep this normalcy while everything was just falling apart around them? Yes. And you know what I remember about that first week is how much we all flocked to liquor stores. To deal with. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have lots of different medications, but um, no, uh, but it does feel a little bit like that chaos on a regular basis. Hmm. So, Constantly trying to figure it out. Well, There's... he and I have separate chemo schedules. So when you get chemotherapy, it's every two weeks. And so basically, he's either sick for the week or I'm sick for the week. And so, Did you plan it that way? Uh, no, but it's almost better than both of us being sick at once. I can imagine. Because having two parents sick and having a six-year-old trying to run around is really hard. There's not much room for error but it's certainly doable. Like if we're just both going through chemo, we've kind of got it figured out so that we can make sure Nate gets to school and have fun and and we can run the household and we both still work. Where it gets hard is if one of us gets an infection and has to go into the hospital, then you call in on the reserves of friends and everybody. We live 10 minutes away from CU Anschutz, which is an amazing hospital. Mm. And we have a very good group of supportive friends out here who if we need a play date for Nate so we can nap, they offer to do that. Mm, it, it's taking a village. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Do you ever crave being in chemo at the same time holding hands? I mean, We've like, done it. Oh, you have? Yeah, have there's a, yeah, we had one day where I <laughs> called it couples chemotherapy. Yeah. And it was, it, it was fine. I mean, chemo is just kind of boring. You sit there for a few hours while a, they have a, a tube hooked up to you. Um, And you'd much rather sleep, honestly, during chemo than have someone bothering you with a bunch of, honey, did we remember to do this today? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody faces it a little differently. Casey tries to work when she can through it. Um, I try to treat that as like a day off where I bring a little video game system to the hospital and that Mm -hmm. way I don't mind it as much. And you see people getting the chemotherapy and everyone's got their own different ways to make themselves feel strong and and get through it. But we'd much rather not all be sick. We did all have COVID at the same time, and our son had COVID, and he was bouncing off the walls. Meanwhile, he, Eric, and I were struggling generally having uh, having right. COVID. Low energy anyway. Yeah. Super low energy. And then on top of that, having your immune system compromised. And then there's also no way to have your friends help when everyone has COVID because you're not supposed to see people. 
that was hard. Will you take me to the moment, Casey, when you, dealing with your own colon cancer diagnosis, learned that your husband, Eric, had colon cancer? What was that moment like? It was ultimately, utterly, completely heartbreaking. He had gone to the ER earlier that night, assuming that he was going to get discharged right away. He even apologized, saying, hey, hon, I know that ER visits are kind of expensive, but I'm going to go and get checked out anyway. He had been texting me all evening saying, oh, they're about to discharge me. Don't worry. I'll be home in the next couple hours. And then he said, oh, well, my hemoglobin is low. We need to go get more tests. And then he got a CT scan. And because of my diagnosis, we knew how bad the disease could get. Um, and so there's yours a, was quite advanced. So there's a number we use called a CEA or carcinogenic embryonic antigen. With that, zero to three is normal, and mine had gotten as high as 150, which is really scary. But that night, after he had gotten a CT scan that showed that there was cancer everywhere, he'd gotten his blood test back, and his was 25,000. And at that and, point, and normal is one to three, zero to three. Whoa. 25,000, and mine was metastasized and gotten up to 150, and I thought that was awful. You'd been upstaged. I'd been, <laughs> definitely. Uh-huh. We, we do joke sometimes who gets to be the sicker one. Um, <laughs> but that night, hearing that, I just assumed that he was going to die. I thought, yeah. there's nothing here. I was mourning him already. And immediately I called some friends. It was like one o'clock in the morning. I got through to my boss, um, who happens to also be a friend of mine, and was just heartbroken thinking that he wouldn't survive the month. And in fact, the next day when we were meeting with a new oncologist, I'd asked what his odds were. And she politely just kept saying that, you know, most people live about two and a half years with this disease. She wouldn't give me any other indication as to what Eric's prognosis was, or if I could count on him being there for, you know, at that point it was February, if I could count on him being there by my birthday in April. It was just so overwhelming because I knew how bad it could be and I knew how bad he was. Thankfully, though, he's been reacting to chemotherapy in a way that is just mind boggling. Uh, now, I've been very fortunate with how I've reacted. There's even among colon cancer, there's a lot of different types and different mutations. Mm-hmm. And the one that I have, again, did really well under treatment. So the CEA number that I had, that was 25,000. A year later, I'm now down to around 15. And Not 15,000, just, just 15. 15. My goodness. Yeah. Okay. So through a combination of different chemotherapies and immunotherapies, it's really gotten it under control, which, again, I, there's nothing that I really did to do that. I still have the same diet. It's just... I'm fortunate enough that my body is responding to the treatments. And I will say that men handle chemotherapy better than women, generally. And so when I am sick as a dog and super tired, and I'm like, didn't you just have the same cycle last week and you were fine? He's just brushes it off his shoulder and says, it's kind of nice to be a guy. Well, well, it's kind of true, but it's also, you know, I I understand that I I have a very fortunate reaction to it. And Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate that you know, maybe after a day or two, I can be up and walking around and helping out. And that's been, again, one of the little blessings of terrible odds that we've had. But there have been some strokes of luck along the way. Eric, there was a moment where you had to kind of steel yourself to tell Casey 
that you had yeah. a colon cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So uh, maybe bring us to that same okay. event from your perspective. I honestly don't know if I remember. Um, that that makes sense to me. Yeah, I think I may have given you a call, Casey. I don't think that would have worked too well over text message, but it was like Casey described. It was pretty quick. I think I made it into the AR at six o'clock. By nine o'clock, they had given me a CT scan, and it was obvious that I had uh, widespread cancer in my colon and in my liver, which I knew at the time was stage four because it was in a couple places. So I'm pretty sure I gave Casey a call. I got to imagine I said, I don't know how to tell you this. And Hmm. and there was a lot of crying. I I think I called my mom after that. Again, a lot of crying. And it was a little bit surreal. Um, And then later that night when I got the really elevated CEA number, I didn't know what to do with it. I don't have the experience of how high those can go. And I've since learned that some people might have it up to 100,000 and it, it can range and it's a tricky thing. But at the time, it was just like, I'm exponentially worse than Casey. What what does this mean? It was, And you'd seen what her journey was to that point. Exactly. Did it make you a better husband to her? Oh, going through the same thing that she was? Yeah. Uh, no, because I'm doing it really well. So I, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. No, it, I, it did. May, may I just say, like, <laughs> it's so clear that both of you rely on humor, which is why yeah. I have felt it's okay maybe yeah. oh, to no, do it. Good. But is that a tool that you use in the... I, I think, think it is. Yeah, humor and trying to find the best of things. I have a tattoo on my arm that is this too shall pass. It's the handwriting of my mom, my six-year-old, my husband, and my sister. And I think so often we have to think about things in bite-sized pieces. If we start to think about what our lives are going to be like in two to three years, mm. that's terrifying. Yes. And that's when we'll get really sad. And maybe once a quarter we'll sit there and just cry and think about how bad we have it. Other than that, we just try to find out, well, at least it's not this. And trying to take it in those bite-sized pieces really does help. I will say one other thing about Eric getting diagnosed, and this is the, the issue of having a dual diagnosis, is I actually had an appointment the next day for my own CT scan. I was going into the hospital that day anyway, and I like broke into my oncologist's clinic um, not broken to, yeah. but I barged <laughs> stormed in. Stormed in. I stormed in and I was like, I need to talk to Dr. Liu right now. I need to talk to my oncologist right now. And I need to like hear that this is going to be okay. And, you know, it was super nice of them. Pulled me back into a room for five minutes, just heard me go off on saying, this is just not fair. What are the odds? Do you think he's going to make it? All those things. And, and really, the, the answer at that point was, we don't know. We don't know. We're going to hear from Dr. Lou shortly. Let me get back to that question, Eric. Has this made you a better partner? Um, I think so. I There's been an interesting thing with it. And, and the hospital has provided us with a social worker that we can talk to. And that's been really, really helpful. Huh. And one thing she mentioned that goes into our dynamics is, in our relationship for a while, Casey was the caregiver and I was always the caregiver because I was healthy um, or thought I was. And now it's changed where we have to be good at switching those roles and whoever's healthier has to be the caregiver. The other person gets to be the caregiver. And I think understanding that has really helped me out. Um, it's helped me understand more like, yeah, we can get through this together and how do we work as a team? 
Well, it occurs to me that vows often include in sickness and in health. <laughs> I certainly did. But the, the assumption is not that both are sick at the same time, right? Like the, the baked in idea is hopefully one of you can take care of the other. There are some things with colon cancer that I won't get into for um, your audience's sake, but it can be kind of gross. And what was really interesting was I went through a lot of those gross things, you know, a couple years prior and Eric had to figure out how to help me dress my wounds, help me do all these other things. And then when it came time for him to do that, I immediately wasn't timid about any of it. Mm. Um, and so I so had So are you a empathy. better partner? I, I will say we've always had a really healthy relationship. Yeah. But I think having that empathy and knowing how, how the other one feels really does make it so that I know that if he says, hey, I need a nap right now, I know he's not being uh, lazy. I know it's that he really needs a nap because sometimes I really need mm. a nap. And so I trust that he's listening to his body in the same way that I listen to mine. The only problem is when we both need a nap um, and we don't have anyone to, to um, Watch pick the up the— Watch six-year-old. Yeah. yeah. That play, he gets Netflix. And I'll say, watching Casey go through it, gave me a template of how to handle it with strength and with dignity. Um, you know, I, I look at how she handled it and want to do the same myself because she, you know, she carried herself incredibly well through it. And having that as an example, I think, was very helpful for me. Mm. Okay, to your child, what do you share with a six-year-old? A lot, actually. This has all been pretty normal for him. When I, he was three when I got diagnosed, and I had to spend two and a half weeks in the hospital with infections and after surgeries. And it was right before COVID. And so he got to come to the hospital and be next to me in the room. And the nurses would give him jello. And so he thinks that every time mommy or daddy goes to the hospital, it's mostly just so we can bring back jello for him. <laughs> he's, he's since learned a little bit more than that. He knows the term cancer. Maybe a month ago when I was driving him to school, we were talking about it and we settled on the analogy of a snowball where the cancer cells are little snowflakes and the cancer mass is a snowball. And what the doctors are doing for us is helping us chipping away at that snowball, mm. making it smaller and making it easier for us. So he knows the term. He knows that we're sick and he knows that the doctors are making us better. One thing that's been actually helpful for us is that we don't think he understands three, four, five years down the road or could understand that, that, you know, hey, mommy and daddy may have X percent of being here when you're 10. Like that wouldn't work with him. So we've been forced to explain it one day, one month at a time. And that keeps us grounded, like what Casey was saying earlier, yes. because, you know, if we have to say out loud to him, well, listen, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that I'm going to go get this treatment and I tend to feel pretty good right now and we're together and we're going to have fun this weekend that reminds us, well, that's what we're going to do. You don't look too far ahead. It does give us a little bit of YOLO, though. So, like, I, every time... YOLO, for the, for the, for the non-kids, yeah. YOLO, you only live once. Yeah. Yes, it, it means that you have to seize the day um, for old school. But it means that if there's a beautiful day out, we are outside. And it means that I make sure that if I'm feeling good, I'm spending time with him. And the moment that I get home from the hospital, I'm reminding him how... I'm proud that he was so good while I was gone. This is a different version of being in the present moment. Exactly. It occurs to me. Yeah. yeah. I need to hear this. I'm <laughs> I, like, 
uh, I'm grateful for the gift that you are giving us because I think I have a friend who says, um, why pay interest on debt you don't have? That's the framing of why would you worry about something that hasn't come yet? Yeah. And it's helpful to hear it in your words. Oh, that's a good, I like that phrase. All right, Dr. Liu, Casey described that scene of storming into your office and saying, "What well, you know, how is this possible? What's going to happen to us? How do you answer a patient like that? Have you ever seen anything like this before? So I don't think any of us really have ever seen anything where we have a married couple and then not only that young and then not only that in such a short amount of time have the two diagnoses uh, of the same cancer. It's just extraordinarily rare. Having said that, what we are seeing in our clinics is a tremendous increase in early onset colorectal cancer. What do we mean by early onset? Yep. You know, the screening age used to be 50. If you hit 50, get screened for colon cancer. Because of this rise in the incidence of early onset colorectal cancer, it's now 45. So we really consider- And that would not have caught, by the way, either Eric or Casey. Exactly. And so we considered early onset colorectal cancer to be you know, any diagnosis under the age of 45, and obviously Eric and Casey are both so young. This is extraordinarily rare, but we are seeing this trend not only in our clinics, not only in the state of Colorado, and not only in the United States, but we're actually seeing this trend worldwide as well. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you that because there's been so much. My mother is a colon cancer survivor, I'll say. And, you know, there was so much talk about the American diet versus like the Mediterranean diet. And uh, so you're seeing this globally. And we heard that Casey and Eric wrestled with whether it might be environmental. What light can you shed? Yeah. So unfortunately, not as much as I would like to. And I, I'm sure everybody listening to this and especially Eric and Casey, we want to know what in the world happened. And it's a really complicated question. The answer is we we just don't honestly know. And it's a very, very complex issue because what we really want is to be able to highlight one risk factor, one environmental exposure, one hereditary factor. But of course, that's likely not the case in any individual that develops colorectal cancer. And then when you look at a group of people, all who had different environmental exposures, different genetics, different diets, different everything... It's hard to really pinpoint any one thing. Mm -hmm. Can we say it's hereditary at all? So we can say that hereditary issues or factors probably play a role in a minority of cases, oh. right? And so while we do know that hereditary causes of colorectal cancer are more prevalent in early onset colorectal cancer, that makes sense, right? Because it's just if you have a hereditary predisposition to develop colorectal cancer, it's going to show up when you're younger. But it's still a vast minority of the cases that we see both, you know, again, in the United States and across the world. Of all ages, you mean? Co well, correct. And even in the early onset, it's still a minority uh -huh. of cases. Okay. And so, well, what does that mean? It means that colorectal cancer is likely being developed because of some combination of environmental factors, potentially diet, you know, even antibiotic use. And some of this is pointing to what we call the gut microbiome, the healthy bacteria that exists in our gut that helps us digest our food and that we coexist with peacefully. But if something alters or disrupts the gut microbiome, it can lead to more inflammation. It can lead to more of a chance for tumor to develop, mm -hmm. right? Because when tumors develop, it's a little bit of a, a chance, you know, mutation type event as well. And so all of these factors kind of pour into even just one individual developing colorectal cancer. After my mom's diagnosis, she became adamant that I be on a probiotic 
And, you know, like she would scan the shelves. She's like, well, this one has 16 billion. Oh, but this one has 149 trillion. <laughs> I'm getting that for my kid. Is that g good? You know, it, it's funny that a lot of times when people ask this question of, you know, well, what am I supposed to do you know, to prevent any cancer? Many of the things that we learn in elementary school still hold very true. In fact, one of the best ways to alter your gut microbiome is to actually eat a diet that's healthy in fruits and vegetables, right? And that just sounds almost too simple to, mm. be, to be the answer. But it is true that if your plate has a lot of color on it, and as long as they're not Skittles, right, they're fruits and vegetables, you're likely having the type of diet that really is going to lead to better health. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't develop cancer in the future. Because but it just I means was that... a vegetarian for six years before developing cancer. Yeah, I mean, I if I were you, Casey, listening to the good doctor speak, I'd be like, well, don't judge me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was a vegetarian. I, I did all the right things. I was healthy and active and hiked every weekend. And before that, I had danced ballet for hours every week and still got mm. this. And, you know, for those of you listening, when you look at Eric and Casey, number one, you would never know that they had any diagnosis of any cancer. But number two, you would also see them as two extraordinarily healthy individuals. And that's mm. actually one of the things that I've seen in my clinic with early onset colorectal cancer. I've had division one athletes. I've had triathletes. I've had people whose lifestyles are easily much more healthy than mine. And so even with that fact alone, you can tell that this is much more complex than well, it's got to be fast food. I mean, Casey's a great example of somebody who has just lived very, very healthy, yet developed this cancer. So it's something a little bit more complex than fast food, uh, sedentary lifestyle. Those are some of the risk factors that we think about for cancer, but that does not answer the question for early onset colorectal cancer. Well, and I hear you saying there are lots of factors, but it does make me wonder if science is searching for a trigger. Is there something that's supercharging this at the moment? Yeah, and I think... With more knowledge about early onset colorectal cancer and more focus on this, we can actually start to do much more in-depth research. But some of that means that we need to collect some of the tumors that we've seen in early onset colorectal cancer and look at them under the microscope and do some like mutational analysis and genetic analysis on these. I mean, I think what you're going to see over the next several years and even decades is just an explosion of research mm. uh, in terms of the development of cause. And, we're talking a lot about, you know, well, what are some of the things that cause this? And, you know, we certainly can't point to one particular risk factor. But one of the reasons why it's just so great that Casey and Eric are sharing their story is because one of the biggest things that we can do now is just make people aware that they should never hear the words, you're too young to develop colorectal cancer. We know that this is an increasing trend. We know by 2030 that 10% of all colon cancers and 22% of all rectal cancers will be seen in early or young adults. Mm. Wow, okay. You think about the numbers, there'll be over 150,000 diagnoses of colorectal cancer in the United States this year. So this is a big population. The recommendations, and frankly, I imagine the insurance reimbursements don't seem to follow what you're saying at this point. I mean, I'll acknowledge that the age went from 50 to 45, as we've discussed, but cold comfort for Casey and Eric. That's right. And, you know, I think one of the things that, again, is just so critical about Casey and Eric's story and why they're here today and telling their story is really just to raise awareness. Now, the question is, boy, do we need to take all 20-year-olds and give them colonoscopies? And the answer is that we would likely actually hurt more people with that procedure than we would actually help in finding an early-stage colorectal cancer. There's always that tension when you talk about increasing screening. 
Yeah, but what about the non-invasive types of screenings? Mm -hmm. So one of the things I was going to say is the message out there to all individuals, regardless of your age, is to never ignore your symptoms. Uh, You know your body better than anybody. When you know that something's different, you're seeing blood in the stool, you're seeing unexplained weight loss or abdominal pain, you know, those are things that should be checked out. Again, a majority of the time, it's not going to be colorectal cancer, but it's just important to not ignore those symptoms. Now, Casey had mentioned there's some non-invasive screening tests. Meaning uh, not a colonoscopy? That's right. Okay. I mean, there's simple, actually quite easy tests, right? You can actually test your stool for blood. There's even a, a stool DNA test called Cologuard that's available as well. So it doesn't all have to be colonoscopies. So some of this is like OTC. Well, so a lot of times you're going to get these tests from your primary care provider, oh. which is another take-home message is that we want everybody to you know, have a good relationship with their primary my care My primary provider. care doctor ignored me. And my primary care doctor, I had gone to see a few times. And actually, I had been excused from the ER four times before they finally admitted me. I was throwing up blood. I was throwing up for 12 hours a day. And they said that I had a stomach virus. Um, because I'm allergic to the CT contrast, whenever I would get a scan, it wouldn't show very much. Mm. So they just said, well, you clearly have a stomach virus. And I was like, I have a toddler at home and he's not sick. How is this possible? And they said, well, your digestive system is just really long. And so it'll take a long time for it to get out of your system. If you just stop eating X, Y, and Z, you'll be fine. And it gave me a complex. It was almost like gaslighting. And I'll say you are absolutely not the first woman to say they were not believed in the healthcare system. There's been research. uh, The Colorectal Cancer Alliance has said that many young people have had their diagnosis delayed by months, if not years, because doctors don't understand that this could be a young onset disease. Hmm. And so they won't refer them for a colonoscopy. Doctor, you want to reflect on that? So when you look at the older adult population, uh, from the time of onset of symptoms, like seeing blood in the toilet, uh, to actually receiving a diagnosis of colorectal cancer, the average number of days is about 25. When you look at early onset colorectal cancer, that is really pushed out to 6 to 12 months, and as Casey mentioned, even beyond. And those are critical days and months, I'm guessing. That's right. And, you know, we have actually research from the University of Colorado that's been performed that shows, again, the earlier you get diagnosed from the onset of symptoms, the lower the stage of colorectal cancer. And, of course, when you're waiting a year or more to receive your diagnosis, you're more likely to have stage 4 or advanced colorectal cancer. So, again, you know, one of the big take-home messages is, You know, not all abdominal pain or even bleeding is necessarily cancer, but we always want our primary care doctors to have that in the back of their minds, Mm -hmm. right? We we really don't want people to become hypochondriacs and say that it's cancer when it likely isn't cancer. But as long as you're always thinking about it as a possible diagnosis, right, and not just saying, oh, well, Casey, you're too young to have have colorectal cancer. As long as somebody's always at least having it in the back of their mind, it will shorten the time it takes to actually establish a diagnosis. Casey also brings up another point of, well, what if I don't feel heard in my appointment? If I, What if I don't feel like somebody's taking my symptoms very seriously? That's a very difficult situation to be in. You know, we always encourage our patients to be, you know, advocates for their own health. Again, you know your body better than anybody else. If you feel like something is really, really different, it's okay to get a second opinion, to get a second look. And again, we just don't want anybody to ever hear the words, 
you're too young to develop colorectal cancer because, again, we have two great examples here that that is not the case. It's also important for patients not to ignore some of their own symptoms. I think I did that, and mm. part of it, there might be a couple stigmas. One, you're afraid that you have cancer. You don't want to hear that diagnosis. So even though I know or knew that Casey had been diagnosed when my stool was getting a little bit thin or I would see a little bit of blood in the toilet, I would think, well, that might be hemorrhoids or I'm just lactose intolerant. And maybe part of me was afraid to hear, oh, I have colon cancer as well because I thought it was a death sentence, which it isn't necessarily. You know, With good treatment, you can keep going. And there's also the stigma, and I know the Colorectal Cancer Alliance I know that they're big on this is there's the stigma about talking about your poop and your bowel movements and those things that hurt. And I mean, especially with your doctors, it's important to let them know everything that you're seeing and, and not just brush it off because it's a taboo subject. Eric, I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank you. Because there is a lot of stigma around colorectal cancer. You know, I think that Katie Couric very famously televised her colonoscopy as a way of acquainting the American people with the idea that, you know, they're not a, a walk in the park, but they're they're fine. You're the, fine. The prep is not great, but honestly, waking up from surgery, that's all you remember. No. It's just kind of giggling. I have diverticulitis and colitis. So at 45 now, I've already had several colonoscopies and I will shout from the rooftops, you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> you'll be fine. Yeah. Uh, do you think that, that stigma is at play here, Dr. Liu? I do. I mean, I, I think anything that's health-related can sometimes be very difficult to talk about, you know, exactly for the reasons that Eric and Casey mentioned. Again, you know, even if you don't talk about it with your friends and your family, the key is really just to have a primary care provider that you can discuss this with, right? And it's important for them to listen. And as weird as it is to talk about, if you notice that there are changes Right. It's very important to talk about that with a healthcare provider um, just so we can keep an eye on it. And if it doesn't get better or if it gets worse, that we can act on it. I want to acknowledge that the notion of getting a first opinion and then after that a second or third, uh, the, the kind of fighting you might have to do with the healthcare system, you know, that takes time. It often takes money. It's sometimes a privilege in this country to be able to do something like that. Before we go, Casey and Eric, tell me each one thing you're looking forward to. What's the chunk of time? What do you say, like a couple of days, a couple of weeks? We do it. We do it. Um, well, usually we plan little vacations. Okay. So we are going to Legoland. Don't tell Nate yet. Yeah. Well, okay, um, Nate can't hear this interview. Then. Nate, our six-year-old, cannot hear this interview. We're going to Legoland at the end of March. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I've already talked with all of my doctors to make sure that I don't have chemo and that I have enough prescriptions to handle any sort of side effects that I'm feeling because I am making sure that that kid gets to go on every Legoland ride that he can possibly be tall enough for. Where is Legoland? Orlando, Florida. Orlando. Yeah, there's one in San Diego too, but we're going to the one in Orlando. I guess to go off what Casey said, I'm looking forward to the Legoland trip too. And, and I'll also mention that it has been nice working with all of the doctors in our experience have been very sympathetic and understanding that we want to live regular lives while we're getting this treatment. So mm. things like pushing chemo the week when we're going to Legoland, or I'm going to get a surgery to take out some of my cancer in early April, 
And my doctors were very understanding and said, we can certainly do that after you get back from your vacation. Because so, Legoland is that important? <laughs> but but again, it to me, it's very important to live as much of a semblance of a normal life as I can while I feel healthy while going through chemotherapy. And I think the same goes for Casey. And it's been another blessing that our doctors have agreed with that. And we've never really been told you absolutely can't do this. It's always been, we will work with you with your schedule for a normal life Mm -hmm. as long as it's safe. I hope people know, like, maybe don't be so scared because it doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of your life. I mean, you can still live a normal, fulfilling life. You just have a few more things to manage and a lot more people to talk to. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Spouses Eric Stanley and Casey Peters of Denver and oncologist Dr. Christopher Liu of CU Anschutz speaking with me about colorectal cancer, which can strike early. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And remember, don't tell Nate about Legoland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Many of Colorado's biggest challenges stem from climate change. The quality and the quantity of our water, air pollution and wildfires, extreme weather. Stay informed about one of the most serious existential issues of our time with CPR's weekly climate newsletter. Every Monday, a roundup of stories curated by CPR's Climate Solutions team comes to your email inbox and gives you a deeper understanding of climate issues and their solutions. Sign up for your copy now at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. Let's remember Colorado's first congresswoman, Pat Schroeder. She served 24 years, and she died Monday of complications from a stroke. What you're about to hear is largely from Schroeder herself, interviews, speeches she gave. She'd been a Democratic political activist, launching her first campaign in 1972. She was also a homemaker and the mother of two young children. It was very frustrating when I announced for Congress the newspaper said, Denver Housewife runs for Congress. I mean, they didn't even put my name in. And I kept thinking, well, yeah, I'm a housewife, but I'm also a Harvard lawyer. I also work at a university, I'm a hearing officer. So it was really a problem from day one from that standpoint. When voters sent her to Washington, the women's rights movement was heating up. Yet Schroeder constantly fought male political power brokers who were confused or adamantly opposed to her mere presence. The day of her swearing in, her husband Jim was by her side. And when I came, the then Speaker of the House, wonderful Carl Albert, kept saying to my husband, raise your hand. And he kept saying, it's her. And he'd look at me and he'd say, no, raise your hand. I've got to swear you in. And he said, no, no, no. It's her. And we would go to all of these events, and they would come and say to me, you're standing in the wrong place. The member's supposed to be in front. And he'd say, it's her. I think he got so tired of saying, it's her. (laughs) That's an excerpt, one of several we'll hear today, from an oral history Schroeder recorded with the Office of the U.S. House Historian in 2015. Next on Schroeder's agenda, committee assignments, which are key to a lawmaker's power and influence on the Hill. She'd campaigned on a platform of improving the lives of children and families. So a lot of people were surprised when she asked for the Armed Services Committee. What I really wanted, because I figured all the money was going through armed services. And I figured there weren't any women. And it was very important to have a woman's viewpoint, too. It's all about 
protecting women and children and they're sucking up all the money <laughs> so there's never any money for education or anything else that I wanted because it was, oh no, we gotta have a strong defense. So I thought, okay, well, I, I wanna be on that committee. And that started a real firestorm because uh, the chairman was not at all wanting to put me on the committee. That chairman was a Louisiana Democrat named F. Edward Bear. He hated having Schroeder on the panel and was just as angry about a black Democrat from California named Ron Dellums. When the two entered the committee room, Bear let loose. And he starts going off about, this is absolutely horrible. I mean, he is bellowing like a bull elephant out in the, out in the jungle. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. You know, it's not even worth running for Congress anymore. They've taken away all your power. There's nothing left. And he says, however, I still have the power to determine how many seats are at the dais. And these two people are only worth half of the rest of my members. (laughs) So they're getting one chair. (laughs) So Ron and I kind of looked at each other. We've both been in the anti-war movement. And the thing was, okay, now what do we do? And we decided that we walk in with great dignity and we share a chair. (laughs) So we sat there cheek to cheek. Barney Frank used to always say it's the only half-assed thing I did when I was in Congress, but, you know, (laughs) I'm not sure that's true. (laughs) But there we were. It was interesting because none of the rest of the committee even pretended to notice. They were all there basically to support their own you know, their own districts and their own bases and everything, and they never want to upset the chairman. Schroeder earned a reputation for stinging political rhetoric, coining the term Teflon president to describe Ronald Reagan. And then one morning I was doing eggs on a Teflon plan, and I suddenly thought, that's it. This guy has a Teflon coat, just like this dog on pan. She co-founded the Congressional Women's Caucus. She was a champion for the Equal Rights Amendment and Equal Pay. Perhaps her biggest legislative accomplishment was the Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA. It requires businesses to give workers time off to care for newborns and sick family members. It took nine years and two presidential vetoes to become law. There's a reminder of Schroeder's work just north of Denver. The Rocky Mountain Arsenal was a chemical weapons manufacturing site and a Superfund site. Schroeder led efforts to clean it up. And today, it's a 15,000-acre national wildlife refuge. During Pat Schroeder's congressional career, other Coloradans also gained national prominence. Democratic Senator Gary Hart ran for president in 1987. When he dropped out, Schroeder tested the waters. But after a few months, she announced it was too late to run a successful campaign. As she spoke to a crowd in Denver Civic Center, she cried. This has been a very difficult decision because of the incredible encouragement you've all given me. And I know your courage, your commitment, your vision, and your vitality are the American dream. The tears made a lot of people mad. They said she looked weak and, well, too female. Here's what she told me about that in a 2016 interview. Men were weeping uh, all the time. I mean, the, the sports guys, Sununu, the president, uh, President Reagan. So really, it, it was kind of a different standard. I always said, maybe I should get Kleenex to be my corporate sponsor. And 
I also used to say, I'll debate anybody. I don't want anybody's finger on the button who doesn't cry. And if you Mm -hmm. want somebody's finger on the button that doesn't cry, let's debate. In 1996, after 24 years, Schroeder decided to leave the U.S. House. I always wanted to go out at the top of my game. You know, we always said that you came out of Congress one of three different ways, by a ballot box, by a coffin-type box, or you can walk out on your own. And I wanted to walk out on my own. She became president of the Association of American Publishers, stayed active in politics, and mentored candidates. In 2016, she campaigned for Hillary Clinton. We'll close with something Schroeder said in an interview with All Things Considered, remembering again that wit. I always wanted to be cremated and made into a doorstop so I could hold a door open. Because basically, what I want to do is hold doors open for people. And I figured that's what I was trying to do in my political career, so why not try and do it in the afterlife, too? Schroeder, as we've said, was a Democrat. Among those mourning her death are some prominent Republicans. Kelly Maher is a political analyst for Nine News. She met Schroeder first as a child on a visit to Washington, D.C. I happen to be the only girl in a group of all boys during this tour. And the fact that I was only in eighth grade, but I knew I loved politics. There was just something about it that was so engaging for me. She stopped and she asked me my name. She repeated it back to me. She looked me in the eye. She made me feel big and important. And she told me, she told me that I could do anything. And the thing is that when you're in eighth grade and you're nobody and somebody who's in Congress says that to you, It's a thing that you remember for your whole life. Maher indeed went on to advocate for Republican policies, never forgetting how Schroeder's career made her own possible. One of my favorite Pat Schroeder quotes is, I have a uterus and a brain and I use both, right? And same, girl. Like, And I love that when she said that, that was something that was controversial and revolutionary. And now... It's a thing that we all can say. Meanwhile, former congressman, now Colorado River District board member, Scott McInnes, has his own favorite Pat Schroeder quote. The Western Slope Republican remembered offering Schroeder advice on styling cowboy boots. She said, I'll take your advice on boots, but I'm not budging on water. We want your water. (laughs) Then I started laughing. The water issue gave McGinnis a close-up view of Schroeder's legislative craft. You'll pardon the wind in the background here. The last thing I needed, in my opinion, was an effective legislator coming out of the Denver area and the Denver Water Board. Those were the days of heated discussions on transmountain diversions. Obviously, today, we're back. But um, she was always approachable, never agreeable with what I considered West Slope issues, and frankly, I'm not sure I was on the the Denver Water Board issues either on the other side of it, but very professional. And, uh, um, you know, I I just really liked her as a person. 
Scott McGinnis and Kelly Maher remembering Colorado's first congresswoman and former presidential candidate Pat Schroeder. She died Monday at her home in Celebration, Florida at age 82.